John chapter 3. Well, some of you this morning have already opened gifts, right? You learned something about self-control. Those who opened their gifts this morning before they came to church. Those who may be waiting to open gifts after church. And in rare instances, there are those families that opened their gifts last night. Some of you have already opened gifts, and I wonder if you've opened... Uh, now, don't say anything. Okay. And you, you may have opened gifts, uh, yeah, from family members, but you've opened gifts also from maybe coworkers. Aren't those gifts sometimes the worst? I mean, those are like the scratch tickets, right? Those gifts that you get that kind of show that the person who gave it really doesn't know anything about you, right? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, some of you have had those experiences. Hopefully, you're not going to have many of those experiences later on today, right? Uh, but you recognize that sometimes as you're giving gifts, some gifts are better than others, right? Some gifts are better than others. Giving and receiving gifts is a wonderful way to show care and affection. I wonder what you would consider are the best gifts. If we were to take a poll, maybe make a list, you say, okay, what makes the best gift? Would, would you say monetary value, right? Uh, perhaps. Maybe you're simply going to say, you know what, the best gifts are those that simply show the person cares about me. Or maybe the best gifts are those that show somebody knows me. Have you ever received a gift that you felt was given to you out of obligation? You just know that person gave it to you because they felt they had to? And, and what's, your, what's your feeling when you receive such a gift? Do you ever sometimes feel like, you know what, I'd rather you just not. Just keep it. There are times when you're given a gift not because the giver is motivated by personal care, but because they feel they have to. The best gifts are those that are given not out of obligation, but out of love. The best gifts are motivated by genuine affection from the giver towards the recipient. Or, have you ever received a gift from someone that was so off the mark that it seemed like they knew nothing about you? It's almost as if they bought a gift intended for somebody else and they wrapped it up for you at the last minute. The best gifts are those given by someone who knows us well. Their gift reveals that they know us deeply. Maybe they've listened to us. They've understood our needs. They've understood our desires. And, you know, they maybe even look for opportunities to listen to what you're saying so that they can surprise you with something that you really wanted or really needed. Those are the best gifts. Have you ever received a gift that seems to have cost the giver little or nothing? I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about even, like, thought, effort. The best gifts are those that appear to have cost something. And again, not necessarily money. Somebody spent some time thinking about what does this person need? What does this person desire? What would they really appreciate? And so effort's been applied. Thought has been spent. Those are the best gifts. Those that are given freely. Those that are given thoughtfully. Those that are given sacrificially. Those are the best gifts. The best gifts are those that show the giver knows us and values us, and is willing to sacrifice for us. Now, at this point, does some of you feel like you need to return some of the gifts that you bought for other people, <laughs> right? I hope not. With that in mind, it's not going to surprise you to see this morning in our text in John chapter 3 that God himself is the greatest gift giver. Let's read John chapter 3, verse 16 and following. For God so loved the world that he gave... 
He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, not, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago when we were in John chapter 3, remember we were talking about Nicodemus, that Jewish teacher, that ruler, that leader who came to Jesus by night, and Jesus shocked Nicodemus by showing him that Nicodemus was blinded by his man-made traditions. Nicodemus was blinded by his own self-righteousness. Nicodemus was blinded by his own ethnic entitlement. And so Jesus tore those blinders away and showed Nicodemus that even you, Nicodemus, a Jew, a leader of the Jews, you need to be saved. You need to be born again. Remember that language? And he went to Ezekiel 36 and 37 and showed Nicodemus, you need an internal change. You need to be changed from the inside out. And so Jesus ended that exchange with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 by quoting or citing a very unusual situation in Israel's history, all the way back from Numbers 21, remember. And so look at John 3, verse 14 and 15. Jesus said to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's talking about Moses lifting up that rod, that bronze rod with a bronze serpent on it. The situation was that the Jews were rebelling against God, and in their sinful rebellion, God sent judgment. And so there were these serpents that, that were biting, and some would die as a result of this. But God provided a means of salvation. He didn't just, uh, upon their repentance, you know, make the serpents go away. He provided a means. And so he said, Moses, take this rod, put a serpent on it, hold it up. And any who will believe that this is the means of deliverance, by looking upon this uh, serpent that's lifted up, uh, those will be delivered from judgment. Well, Jesus is citing this story and saying, likewise, must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a reference to himself. So that whoever believes in the Son of Man who's been lifted up, that one will have eternal life. And so, just as God provided a means of salvation from judgment for the Jews in the Old Testament uh, in this particular situation, He's now provided a salvation or a means of salvation for all. Just as God's provision of salvation for the Jews featured a serpent lifted up, so now this salvation for all would come uh, about via the Son being lifted up. Just as God provided salvation for all, uh, for the rebellious Jews through belief or faith, it wasn't works, it wasn't, you know, shake off the serpent the best you can, that wasn't the situation, it was simply look and believe and you'll be delivered. So now, Jesus says, God has provided a greater salvation for the whole world, which now comes about also by faith. That's the connection, that's why Jesus is talking about this situation all the way back in Numbers 21. Well... Notice in John 3.16 that God has expressed his love for the entire world, and he's done it by giving. 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so a free offer of salvation for all those who would look upon the Son and be saved. And so with that, we're going to just take a few minutes to consider God as the greatest gift giver, and of course focusing upon the nature of Jesus Christ as that gift. And so first of all, we're going to consider that Jesus, as a gift, is a gift motivated by love. It's a gift motivated by love. Look in verse 16. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Doesn't the Bible say that Christians are not to love the world? In fact, you know who said that Christians should not love the world? John. John elsewhere tells us that we are not to love the world. But here he says that God loved the world. What's the connection? Christians are not to love the societal system. Christians are not to love the values of the culture. Christians are not to love the world's philosophies, the world's entertainments. Christians are not to go along with the world's pride and the world's lust and the world's covetousness and the world's fleshly passions. That's different from loving humanity. And what's being said here is that God loves humanity. God loved the world in that he loved humanity, mankind. Even in his fallenness, even in his sinfulness, God loved man, men and women. Even as they rebel against God, God extends his love. That's the type of love we're talking about here. That is, God looks upon humanity as precious souls made in his image. And that's a reminder for us, right? We don't love the culture. We don't love the value system. We don't love the philosophies. We don't love uh, the pride, the lust, the covetousness that's in the world. But we are to love Humanity, a love for people, a love for even sinful people. Why is this important? Because Christians, for some reason, seem to have a tendency, once becoming saved, once choosing to follow Jesus, to then become judgmental towards the culture, the sinners out there. And so have you experienced or been exposed to a Christian community that seems so isolated from the culture that they just seem to be this small enclave of individuals who stand in judgment about everything outside their doors? Or their walls? That's not at all the example set by God the Father. He loves the world, even in their sinfulness. Doesn't love their sin, but loves them even in their fallen state. And it must be that way, otherwise none of us would ever have been saved. And so God so loved the world. And get in trouble here a little bit. If you're like hardcore Calvinistic, and you know, you hear this, idea of universal offer of salvation. You say, wait a second, he needs to reel this in a little bit here. What about the elect? What does it say? God so loved the world. God so loved the world. He provided a means of salvation fit and sufficient for the entire world. God loves humanity. Precious souls. You hear about the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life is applied far beyond just life in the womb which we affirm that the sanctity of life extends to all men and women their whole life long. And so Christians ought to love. We love humanity, just as God loved the world. And as we're going to see in a little bit, he loved us while we were in the midst of our rebellion. Now, love is an action word, right? Love is an action word. I love you. Okay, we'll prove it, right? Uh, have, you heard some, have you experienced that? Somebody who will... Just freely use the term love, but seems to be no evidence of love. 
We know that love is an action word. And we know this from this very verse because it says, God so loved that He gave. That He gave. God so loved, He gave. This is the type of love that we are called also to show to others. When the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul, if you read uh, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is busy trying to motivate the Corinthians to give money to the poor believers that are in Judea. And so multiple chapters are spent with Paul encouraging the Corinthians, hey, follow up with your pledge. Follow up with your commitment to give money to the poor churches. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8.24. He says, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Paul is saying, okay, you can talk all day long about how you love the poor, but put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> Show proof of your love. Prove it. How? Through action. God proved his love. He proved his love by giving. He proved his love by giving his son for the world. This is the greatest manifestation of divine love that could ever be extended. And so John says in 1 John 4, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. You want to see the love of God? This is how you see the love of God. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The greatest expression of divine love, the greatest expression of love that could ever be expressed is that he sent his son. In in what way did he send his son? Well, John says, to be a propitiation for our sins. That is, to make an acceptable sacrifice in order to atone for our sin. In other words, and this takes us to our next point, not only is God's greatest gift a gift motivated by love, but God's greatest gift is a gift perfectly suited for our needs. Perfectly suited for our needs. Look again at verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In God's love, he gave us a gift perfectly suited for our need. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Because of our innate sinfulness, we're naturally estranged from God. We're naturally estranged from spiritual life. Man without God is a man destined, what does it say, to perish. So man in his natural state is going to perish. God sees in his love and says, I'm going to provide a means through which man can escape that perishing. He provided exactly what we needed. He looked upon fallen humanity, destined to perish due to their sin, and provided the gift of his son to save us. And remarkably, he did this while we were sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, For a while we were still weak. At the right time, I mean at the perfect time, just when we needed it. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You understand what that means? I mean, in the depths of sin. Uh, there's no self-righteousness here. There's no worthiness here. While we are there miring uh, in, in the mire uh, of, the, of the filth of our own sin, God reaches in and says, I'm going to save this one. 
And so he sends Jesus while we are in that state. What does a lost sinner need? If we're innately sinful, what do we need? A leg up? A handout? Hand up? Motivational speech? Is that what you need? What does a lost sinner need? If we're hopelessly weak and, as the Bible says, spiritually dead, then what do we need? What we need is not a leg up or a second chance, but a loving Savior who could come and atone for our sin to make a way that we can attain eternal life. What we needed was a salvation that was not dependent upon works. To come to somebody who's spiritually dead, uh, who's spiritually unable, and say, okay, here you go, here's a salvation provided for you, all you got to do is work a little bit harder and you can have it, well, that's no gift at all. What we needed was a salvation not dependent upon our worthiness or our work, and God understood our needs perfectly, and so provided a gift that perfectly met those needs. Just at the right time, God sent His Son while we were weak and unable to save ourselves. God didn't provide a salvation by works when what we needed was mercy. He didn't send a second chance when what we needed was grace. Instead, while we were hopelessly lost in our sin, He sent us exactly what we needed, which was a Savior. I mean, that's a good gift. Could you imagine looking upon someone in desperate need of immediate help and just giving them a lecture? Imagine looking at a drowning man, and instead of saving that drowning man, just giving him a lecture about how he should have followed safety protocols. Could you imagine looking at someone suffering under the consequence of their own sin, and instead of sharing Jesus with them, condemning them? That's not what they need, and that's not what we needed. And so look in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's not what the world needed. There's condemnation and judgment and lecture and guilt. What the world needed was a Savior. So Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. When we're hopelessly lost in sin, rebelling against God, continually indulging in our sinful desires to our own hurt, He did not send Jesus to condemn us, but to save us. He didn't beat us down with guilt, but sent the one who could cleanse our conscience. He didn't lecture us. He loved us. He didn't guilt us. He gave. He didn't condemn us. Instead, he had compassion. That makes for a pretty good gift, doesn't it? So then, does he just overlook our sin? Not at all. And that's why the nature of the gift of Jesus Christ is Christ coming as a propitiation. The the gift is such that the gift itself deals with our sin and the guilt of our sin. He doesn't overlook our sin, but the nature of the gift is to deal with our sin. And so, yeah, he knew what we deserved, condemnation. But he also knew what we needed, a salvation not dependent upon works or worthiness. And so as the greatest gift giver, he sent his son to die in our place, atoning for our sins and providing a salvation to be attained by faith. This was a great gift, which perfectly met our needs, perfectly understood our limitations. Titus chapter 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we needed. Salvation not by works, but by mercy. And so he provides that means for us, not dependent upon us, according to his mercy. He shows compassion. Compassion to us while captive to our sin. This love is magnified and this gift is magnified when we consider that oftentimes the suffering that we experience in this life, you think about God having compassion upon us and mercy upon us when we suffer? That compassion is magnified when we consider that so much of our suffering is a result of our own sin. It's self-inflicted. We suffer as a consequence of our own bitterness, our own hatred, our own jealousy, our own pride. We suffer as a consequence of giving in our own sinful lust and our own sinful passions. We suffer as a result of resorting to sin in order to cope with life. And so much of our suffering is self-inflicted, but God even looks at us while suffering under our own sin as a consequence of our own actions and our own sinful desires, and then has mercy. Because he understands that we are sinners, and along with being sinners, we're also sufferers. We suffer, and he's merciful towards that suffering. And again, what does that remind us? It reminds us that our love for others will see us recognize that others are not only sinners, but also sufferers. It means that the Christian is not going to be one who looks at another who's suffering as a result of their sin and say, well, what did you expect? You made your bed, lie in it. Imagine if God had the attitude that we have towards others, towards us. When we see others paying the price for their own sinful decisions or actions, we don't judge, we don't condemn. Instead, we understand they're captive to sin and suffering as a consequence, and we have mercy upon that suffering. And so, just as God did not send his son to condemn, but to save, so we refuse to condemn, but to offer the Savior. So the greatest gift giver, as the greatest gift giver, God gave us a gift motivated by love. For God so loved the world. He gave us a gift perfectly suited for our needs, a salvation so that we will not perish but have eternal life. And next, we see that as the greatest gift giver, God gave us the gift of Jesus at great personal cost. Verse 16 again, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son. His, his unique, one-of-a-kind son the second person of the Trinity. There is no greater love than what exists between the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, It's such that John could say, simply, God is love. The Godhead, the community within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is such a perfect love that we could simply say, God is love. The Father loves the Son with a perfect love, just as the Son loves the Father with a perfect love, yet the Father sent His Son to take on flesh. The babe was born in the manger, took on flesh, lived as a man, was rejected by men, died an excruciating death, bore the sins of the world upon the cross. And the father looked upon the son whom he loved and watched him suffer and die at the hands of sinful men, sinful men for whose sins he was actually dying. On the cross, remember, Jesus said to the father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're a dad here this morning, could you imagine your child looking at you and saying, my my dad, dad, why have you forsaken me? Any earthly father would have his heart rended 
by such a cry. Imagine how much greater the heart-rending would be for a father, a heavenly father, who loves perfectly. The Apostle Paul speaks to the indescribable cost paid by the father in giving his only son in Romans 8. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's nothing more. There's nothing more that can be given. There's no gift greater than the gift of his only son. And since he's given the gift of his only son, there's nothing he will withhold from you. That's a good reminder for those of us this morning who are Christians because, frankly, after coming to Jesus through faith, by grace, now you think that it's left to you to work, it's left to you, uh, and uh, God now is withholding goodness from you or withholding grace from you because you're not measuring up. That's, 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 that's a humanistic, that's a man-centered thinking. That's not biblical. What Paul is saying is that if he gave you his son, what in the world else is he going to withhold? And he gave us the son while we were sinners and completely undeserving. So why in the world would we think that he's going to withhold anything from us now because we don't measure up? Especially considering that now as a believer, you have standing. You're adopted into his family. You have the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And so now he's going to say, oh, well, you need to work a little harder. Not at all. He gave the costliest gift in giving his son. What else would he ever withhold? Now, as we talk about the father giving the son, does it pop into your mind and say, oh, wait a second, does that mean Jesus didn't give himself? Does it mean that Jesus was unwilling in giving himself, but the Father's the one who, you know, is there some of that confusion in your mind? Galatians 1.3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And so Jesus gives himself according to the will of the Father, if you needed that clarification. So, After millennia of sin and rebellion from his creatures, God provides a means of atonement to free us from our sin. He provides the means to save us at great personal cost. Recognizing that we're hopelessly lost and unable to rectify our situation, God took the initiative and provided a salvation which could be attained not by works or personal righteousness, but by faith. And so he provides the perfect gift, motivated by love, perfectly suited for our needs, and at great personal cost. And then lastly, not only did he provide a gift motivated by love and perfectly suited for our needs and at great personal cost, but he's provided this gift for whom? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Remember that the context here was Jesus talking to Nicodemus? Nicodemus, this Jewish spiritual elite, the teacher of Israel, self-righteousness, ethnic entitlement, and so on, uh, depending upon his keeping of man-made traditions and all that stuff. The reason this would have been shocking to Nicodemus when Jesus says to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes, is because Nicodemus would have felt, number one, the source of eternal life, or, or how do we attain eternal life, is rooted in our own self-righteousness or our own keeping of uh, commandments. But what Jesus is saying is that I'm the source of eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. So Jesus is presenting himself as the source of eternal life. That would have been shocking to Nicodemus. Second, Jesus is saying that faith and not works is the means by which one attains eternal life. That whoever believes. But then also, and this is our point here, this would have been shocking to him because what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that this salvation is for whoever believes, not just Jews. Not just religious elites. doesn't matter your ethnic background. doesn't matter where you come from. Whoever believes. It doesn't even matter the depth of sin. Whoever believes. Are there exceptions there? No, whoever believes. This is a gift provided for all. It is sufficient for all. And so God has given a gift to the entire world so that anyone who believes might escape, God, uh, escape death and receive eternal life. Now, the gift is for provided for the entire world. Is the entire world saved? Clearly not. Why? Because the gift is for the whole world, but whoever believes will receive eternal life. What does it mean to believe? To believe in Jesus is not merely to believe that he existed or that he died on the cross. Not just that. To believe in Jesus is to believe what God has testified about his son. That's why when you come to John 17 and Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, I've accomplished everything you've given me to do. I've done it all. And what's his evidence of that? Well, now they know. Now they believe that I came from you. Right? They believe the testimony that you've given of your son. To believe in Jesus is to believe that what God has testified about him. It's to believe that Jesus is the authoritative Lord. All judgment has been granted the Son is to believe that Jesus is the only Savior, and that salvation is via His atoning sacrifice upon the cross. This belief entails a complete trust in Jesus as one's personal Savior and Lord. It's it's this genuine belief, then, that's lived out in a life devoted to Christ. According to Jesus, it's this sort of belief which results, again, in eternal life. What's eternal life mean? Well, life... We saw this earlier, this regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, makes you new on the inside, uh, really unites you with the Trinity, so you are caught up into that divine fellowship. You now have access to the Father. Why? Well, because you've been made spiritually alive. That's spiritual life, and it's eternal. That's the quality of that life and quantity of that life. It's eternal life. Through belief in Jesus, we're granted eternal life, which means we never fear death, or the word that's used here is, we never fear perishing. Instead, we understand that we are new creatures fit for a new creation. And so, provision for this sort of salvation has been made for whom? For the entire world, through Jesus, but only those who believe will receive it. So, in conclusion, will everyone receive the gift? That God's the greatest gift giver. He's offered Jesus Christ, perfectly suited for our needs, motivated by love, um, at great personal cost. Will everyone receive it? You would think common sense. Well, of course everyone would receive it. Of course everyone would receive it. We're lost. That's our innate uh, character, born into this world as sinners. Uh, We're separated from God, estranged from Him. We're spiritually dead and spiritually unable. We need a salvation. We need eternal life if we are going to uh, uh, be members of or participants in that new creation. So we all need salvation. We all need the gift. So certainly everyone would receive it. But no, 
Well, why? Why would some not receive the gift? Look in verse 19. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And John introduces that idea of light all the way back in chapter 1. Jesus is that light. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Light illuminates. I mean, light kind of shows us the way, you know. But light also does something else. Light exposes. If you have something you want to hide, you don't take it into the light. You hide it in the darkness. Some will not come to Christ because Christ not only illuminates and shows us the way of salvation, but He exposes our sin. You don't come to a Savior unless you acknowledge you need a Savior. You don't come to one who has atoned for sin unless you first admit that you're a sinner. And so this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. They don't want the exposure. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. To trust in Jesus is to admit that we're sinners and in need of a Savior. John likens this to somebody just emerging from darkness into the light. Again, understanding it exposes. So one who comes to Jesus says, yeah, I'm laying it all out. I'm laying it bare. I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I cannot save myself. I need Christ. Some will come to Christ that way, confessing their sins, readily admitting their lost state and their need of salvation. These men and women will value God's gift as precious. These will embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord and live their lives with a perpetual sense of indebtedness to God. These will recognize that Jesus is God's gift of love, His gift perfectly suited to their needs, and a gift given at great personal cost. And those who come to the light will receive eternal life. These who come to the light will clearly reveal that God has done a work in their hearts and that by His power they've come to Christ. On the other hand, there are those who will not admit they're sinners. I'm pretty good, pretty moral person, and we just ask by what standard are you saying this? Is it the standard of God's holy character, or is it the standard of your neighbor? Some will not admit that they're sinners. They will not recognize the severity of their sin or the depth of their need. Because these do not see the severity of their sin or the depth of their need, they'll not see the value in God's gift. God's Jesus dying upon the cross in my place for my sin is not valuable. It's completely unnecessary. These men and women will not come to Christ for salvation because to do so is to be exposed as a sinner. These are those who are perfectly content in their sinful state and would rather avoid the light and remain in darkness. And so John says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Well, as we close and go about our Christmas day, you're reminded that Christmas, when we think about the babe in the manger, yes, a baby born, but understand that that miraculous birth represents God's greatest gift. God as the greatest gift giver. When that child was born 2,000 years ago, he was a gift given by the Father for you and me. 
a provision for the entire world, a gift given out of love, perfectly suited for our needs and given at great personal cost. And that's why Isaiah, we're going to end here, 600 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he could say, For unto us a child is born. And you say, yes, that's Christmas. That's what we understand about Christmas. For unto us a child is born, but then Isaiah says, To us a son is given. He's the greatest gift. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the greatest gift. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, you are motivated by your love for us when we are completely undeserving. You're motivated by your love for us and you provided a gift perfectly suited for our needs. A gift of salvation by grace through faith and not of works because you recognize we're completely unable to save ourselves and to meet any standard of holiness. Instead, you provided salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And Lord, you did this at great personal cost, giving your only son. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the greatest gift. And we recognize also that you've not only provided Christ for us as individuals, but this is a gift you are extending to the whole world. And so Lord, this morning, if there's any here visiting with us who are not yet Christians, or any who have been attending for some time who are not yet Christians, We pray that they would come to the light. We pray that they would understand that you have extended Christ to them as a perfect gift, perfectly suited for their needs. I pray that they would come to Christ readily admitting that they're sinners in need of a Savior and that they would trust Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. Lord, we understand this morning that although you saved us not according to our works and although you saved us while we were yet sinners, You've also now provided us the means by which we can live holy lives by your Holy Spirit. So help us as believers, having been saved by grace and not according to our works, help us now to walk according to your Spirit, using the means you've given us to live a holy life according to your grace. And we know that when we fail, Lord, you're merciful and gracious. We know that when we fail, we are still your adopted children, never to be separated again. So help us to rest in that grace. And again, we just pray that you would save souls. We pray that if there's any here who are stubborn, rebellious, determined to stay in the darkness, unwilling to come to Christ, to be exposed as sinners, we just pray that you'll soften their hearts. Soften their hearts. Help them to see their need. Bring them to a place of brokenness so that they can be saved. And Lord, we know that you didn't send your son to condemn, but to save. So we pray that they would feel that. And uh, lastly, I just pray for any who have... Maybe a history being exposed to churches or Christians who, for whatever reason, maybe were not taught properly or maybe weren't genuine believers at all, but who had a spirit of condemnation, who were judgmental, who were critical, who didn't show the love of Christ to others. If there's any here this morning who have suffered at the hands of those who claim the name of Christ and have been given a wrong impression of your attitude towards sinners, we pray that you divest them of that and help them to understand your mercy and your grace towards sinners not condoning their sin, but recognizing that they're sufferers and providing the very means to escape that sin. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would work and apply this message in various ways in different hearts. And bless us as we go our own ways and help us again to show this love uh, to our unsaved family members as we go about our family gatherings uh, today and in the coming days. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.